Hey Icon, Pastor Justin here. Glad to be back after a couple of weeks uh, out of the pulpit. Uh, we are back in Romans, so if you want to turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, while you're doing that, uh, very excited about our morning service opportunity. Uh, hoping to be able to give you more and more detail as the weeks go on. Uh, but that's very exciting because I know for a lot of you, mornings are a better time uh, to get to church. So, uh, very excited about that. Second thing I want to say is that my last Sunday, or my family's last Sunday, is going to be June 27th. So, so the final Sunday of this month will be our family's last Sunday. I will continue to come up uh, every once in a while for the rest of the year, uh, sometimes to preach, sometimes just to be here. Uh, but June 27th is our last Sunday. So we'd love to see you all out live uh, at the five o'clock service. So come say goodbye to us so, so we can say goodbye to you as well. So uh, Romans chapter six, we're doing verses 15 through 23 today. And Paul's argument, this is what I love about Romans, is basically he starts in Romans 1 and makes one long argument for the entirety of the book. So in order for us to really understand uh, 15 through 23, we have to understand what Paul has been doing more broadly throughout the book of Romans. So I want to recap just a little bit, uh, just so we can kind of catch up to our passage today. So in Romans 1 through 5, chapters 1 through 5, Paul is arguing for for the gospel, specifically as he is writing to Roman Jews, um, that, that we are now as Christians under grace, not under the law, which is a monumental shift for the Jews. I mean, they've spent generations, their entire existence, uh, living under and operating under the assumption of the law, and that the law was the mediator between them and God. So following the law, the, the restrictions of the law, but then also the sacrifices and process of the law was what mediated their sin between them and God. So now Paul has made this huge shift with them as a result of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and now is arguing to them, listen, we are no longer under the law. We are now under grace. So naturally, there are questions that they have that Paul is trying to answer. So every time he makes an argument, you'll see him kind of do this rhetorical question kind of structure, which I think is actually super helpful. Um, and I want us to see kind of how this is working. So that first rhetorical question is in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, right? So right after arguing for the gospel, he says, what shall we say then? Are we are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why would he ask that? Um, Paul's argument in, in, chap, in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 says this. This is, the, right, this is just leading up to this verse. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul has just argued, listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So sin takes a step, grace is already there. Sin takes a big step, grace is already out in front, right? Every time sin grows, grace grows more. There is no sin that can out-sin the grace of God. Grace abounds more. So 
Paul kind of uh, assumes, presumes their next question and says, okay, well, if that's true, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He goes, well, then does that mean we should continue to sin so that grace continues to abound? It would not be a good thing, right? That's, that's the logic. If, there's, if sin means more grace, shouldn't we sin more so that there's more grace? More grace is good, right? Like that, that makes some sense. Paul says, no, verse two, by no means, by no means. The whole reason Jesus died is that so that you can walk in newness of life, right? This is what he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it, right? That, that, that makes no sense. Jesus died to free you from your sins. So the Romans were basically asking, right? Like, well, if, if we're saved by grace and not by the law, then does sin really matter? anymore? And Paul says, yes, the answer is yes. And we're going to get into the why on that question in our passage today. This is our second question. So shoot ahead to chapter six, verse 15. Again, he uses this phrase, what then? This is his rhetorical device to, to kind of bring up questions that he assumes they're asking. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace. What I love about this structure is that Paul totally gets people, right? Totally gets people. Under the law, everyone is freaking out about the law and righteousness and obeying the rules and obeying the law because that's how you win the game, right? That, that's the structure of the game. If you obey the law and you're perfect by the law, then you get God. That, that's what mediates this whole thing. And so people freak out about it. the Pharisees are adding laws to it. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees are like, not enough. We want more laws, more rules. Why? Because they really wanted to obey so much. They just loved God and God's righteousness so much. No, these are terrible people just like us, right? Why did they add more rules? Because that's how you win the game. That's the game as it's played. And so they're trying to stack the game in their favor. They go, well, I'm a very disciplined person and I can follow all the rules. So if there's more rules, that, that is an advantage to me. Paul knows how people work. Suddenly though, it's not about the law anymore. And Paul knows that people are going to be like, okay, cool. So we can sin now, right? Like these very same Pharisees who are adding laws to the book are now going, wait, 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 so now we can sin? We can sin? All those things that I've not been doing but really secretly wanted to be doing but haven't been doing because that's not how you win the game, right? Like it's the lowest, fewest amount of sins wins. It's golf uh, for Jesus basically, right? Like fewest sins win. And now all of a sudden that's not the game and they go, okay, so now, now can I sin? Now can I lie? Now can I cheat? Now can I sleep with my neighbor's wife? Because I've been kind of looking at her, but, but repenting and, and sacrificing goats in the process, like, because that was the game. But now that's not the game anymore. So can I do it? Paul gets this. Like he gets how people work. They were just trying to win the game. They didn't actually hate sin. Okay, so this is Paul kind of drawing out these assumptions in them. And this is the question that he's going to answer. If it's about grace now and not about law, then can I sin? That's basically the question that he's going to answer. Now, he answers it pretty quickly. He says in the very next sentence, 
by no means. And there, you can just hear the collective disappointment of all the Jews in that moment, right? Like there was this flicker of opportunity that they thought they had, and now it's gone, right? Like now they're like, they're back to no sin, right? For a totally different reason, but they're right back where they were before, no sin. Now, question is, why should I not sin? Why should I not sin? It says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law and under grace? By no means. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? Right? The question here of why should I not sin, I think, is foundational to everything we do. All of our human behavior. Right? I am someone who needs motivation. I know this about myself. It is why I love CrossFit. And I know, I know, I use this illustration a lot. And all of you roll your eyes, except Coach Joe. Love you, Coach Joe. Uh, but, but here's the deal. CrossFit makes me not fat by giving me a scoreboard. That is my motivation. I, I, I am, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not there for the fun. I'm certainly not there for the community, right? Like all these people are there like, oh, it's so good to see you. And I'm like, I'm beating you today, right? Scoreboard. That's my motivation. I want to win. And so I love the fact that after we're done, there's a scoreboard and it, it, it shows who are the winners and who are the losers. And in my mind, they're, they're losers, right? Like I put L's on their back, right? Like, cause that's what they are. I need that motivation. I need it. I know that I need it. So when, when Paul says, uh, listen, you still can't sin, right? I know it's all grace now, but you still can't sin. Even though the rules of the game have been changed, you can't sin. I know I, in my own heart, am going, why? Why? I need incentives. I need motivation. And I know it's it, it, in certain ways for certain people, it plays out differently, but we all do. We all do need motivation. I mean, some people do grow to, go to CrossFit for the community. They're the losers, but they do go for the people. We all have different motivations. We all have different incentives, but every single one of us needs it. So the Romans here are asking rhetorically, what's my motivation? Why should I not sin? Because the reality is not sinning is hard. Being disciplined is work. It takes intentionality to not lie, cheat, steal, gossip, or sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. You have to do that stuff on purpose. And in order to do things that are difficult, you need motivation. You need a reason. More than just even avoiding sins, pursuing life in Christ, right? Like we often just think about the law and grace and all this is about sin. And that's certainly a big part. That's the, the like negative side of the ledger. But you eliminate the sins and you're just to neutral. But that's not all that God has made us for or called us to. There's all the positive side of the ledger, uh, of the ledger as well. It's not just avoiding sins, it's about pursuing life in Christ, practicing spiritual disciplines, going to church, tithing. It's all hard. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Paul's answer is because you are a slave. That's your default being. You are 
a slave. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Okay. Rebecca Pippert uh, wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. In it says this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. More famously, Bob Dylan said, everybody serves somebody. Maybe the devil or it may be the Lord, but everybody serves somebody. Paul's argument here is that whatever you give yourself to, whatever you pursue, whatever you want, you are enslaved to it. It is your master and you will obey. So you want power? You want popularity? You want money? You want success? You want a girl? You want a guy? You want a bunch of girls? You want a bunch of guys? Whatever. You will do whatever it asks of you to get it. You will. That's what you want. Now, some of you are not so aspirational, right? Like some of you just want to be left alone. Some of you just want comfort. Some of you just want pleasure. Some of us just want to be kind of able to do whatever it is we want to do, which is maybe lay around and play video games or whatever, right? Like sometimes our aspirations are not big, but we will still do whatever we have to do to get the thing we want. We're enslaved to it. There's no way around that. All of us are pursuing something and we will do whatever it takes to get that thing. If your master tells you to lie, cheat, steal, cut corners, ignore your family, cheat on your spouse, work too many hours, skip church, whatever it is, you'll do it because it's what you want. It's what you want. Now, I want to do a quick side note on Paul's use of the word slavery here because I know that that's a touchy deal. So in the ESV, which is the translation we use, there's a, a, a note on this on how they chose to translate this word slavery. And I want to read that note for you just to give you a little bit of context for it because he's going to talk about slavery a lot in Romans. So we're talking about words that are hard to translate. So it's this, such is the case in the translation of ebed in Hebrew or doulos in Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings. Slave, bond servant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed and doulos has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily by birth, by being captured in battle, or by judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic Law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a freedman. 
The ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of meaning in each context. Where absolute ownership by a master is envisaged, as in Romans 6, slave is used. Where a more limited form of servitude is in view, bondservant is used, as in 1 Corinthians 7. Where the context indicates a wide range of freedom, as in John 4, servant is preferred. So, I call that out for two reasons. First, the discussion of slavery in the Bible is nuanced and complicated, and I want us to have some level of knowledge about what was happening both culturally and linguistically during that time. And I want us to be clear what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6. Second, Notice that the translators use the word slave in Romans 6 because, as this little thing called out, absolute ownership is envisaged in Romans 6. Those are the stakes that Paul lays out. Because here, we're going to talk about grace and the law. I'm going to tell you it's all about grace. You're going to immediately go, well, then can we sin? Paul goes, by no means. Why? Because whatever you give yourself to, you are enslaved to. You are absolutely owned by. Okay? Those are the stakes of what we're talking about. Now, he says that in a, in a very general sense. Like, you can give yourself to anything and you're enslaved to it. That, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, that, that's not objectively evil. You could be enslaved. You could enslave yourself to some master that is to your advantage. This happened all the time in, in Roman culture in New Testament times. Basically, you would enslave yourself to a master. It would be like getting a job for seven years and you're committing to that job and to that master for seven years. It's basically a seven-year contract. That could be very advantageous. It's not inherently evil, right? What Paul is going to unpack for us is what the consequences of yoking ourselves as slaves to various things. So, again, in verse 16. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's it. Those are the choices. Sin or obedience. You only have two options when it comes down to it, right? So there's theoretically this huge range of things, but when it comes down to it, you either enslave yourself to God and pursue obedience, basically be the person you were made to be or everything else. That's it. You are a hammer. You were created to hammer nails. You can do that or you can do anything else, but that's not what the hammer was made for, right? You, you are an automobile. You were created to transport people. You can do that safely, or you can do anything else and not be what you were made for, right? There's a, there's a real simplicity to this argument from Paul, where he goes, this, it's about grace, so don't give yourself to sin, because sin is everything you were not created for, and it leads to death. There is only one right path. There is only one master to enslave yourself to. He is also your creator. He is also your sustainer. He is also the one that's laid out the path to righteousness. In that sense, it's not super complicated. Okay, So, kind of lays out the stakes. 
And then he's going to tell us a little bit about who we are and how we go about doing this. Verse 17. He says, but, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, this sentence is a sentence written to Christians. Okay, So if you're out there and you're a Christian, what Paul is saying about you is objectively true. Okay, If you are united to Christ, the way Josh talked about last week, if you are united to Christ, this is true about you. So let me reread it, break it down just a little bit to tell you what is true about you. Verse 17 again. But thanks be to God. First, it's God's doing. Thanks be to God, not, hey, great job, Phil. Nice choice, Jimmy. You've done it, Sally. Thanks be to God. God did it. God intervened in your life. God transformed your heart. God did it. So thanks be to God that even though there's this wide range of options that you have before you, God has made you his. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, as we all are, right? That we were born into sin. He's already covered this earlier in Romans, that we begin in sin, that we were once, that we, when we open our eyes and do those first naked cries uh, just coming out of our mom, like we are born in sin, that's where we begin. That's where it all starts. Though we were once slaves to sin, we have become obedient from the heart. That the work of God is not an external work. It's not a work that comes outside in. It's not a work where this obedience, right? Like that we become obedient, which is about actions. It's about desire. It's about motivation. It's about a lot of external things. But he says we have become obedient from the heart. That the work of God that we are thanking him for is a work that begins in here and then works itself out. And this is, this is fundamentally different from the way it worked in the Old Testament with the law. Where the law worked outside in, that we did things that then made us pure. It, by grace, God has made us his so that we are obedient from the heart and then that works itself out in our lives. That we are obedient to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And this just basically means like we have been taught and are being taught what it means to be who God made us to be. What it means to be obedient. And we go through our lives day in, day out, making these decisions. We are confronted with situation after situation after situation. We have to go, yes, that's the Lord's way. No, that's not. Right? A million times a day, we have two options. We go, this is obedience, this is disobedience. This is the way I was created, this is not the way I was created. It's just that choice over and over and over. So we've been made new by God from the heart to pursue obedience according to the standard of teaching to which we have committed. And having been set free from sin... Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
that the work of God in us sets free. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer necessarily obeying sin, but now are slaves of righteousness. This is who you are. This is the objectively true thing about a Christian. Now, there are implications of that. That has been done in us. Now, what will we do with it? Continue in verse 619 in what is probably my favorite like half verse in the Bible, right? Paul's making this argument. Verse 19 says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Oh, thanks, Paul. Because you're not human. Because you, you just like got this from on high and you're like, how do I translate it so these normos will understand it, right? Like, so I'll use an illustration about slavery because they're humans and they have the limitations that I don't have, right? Love Paul's condescension in Romans 6, 19a. Four, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, right? This is the exhortation. This is Paul going, now do this, okay? So he goes, here's what's true. Thanks be to God, you have been changed from your heart. You are now enslaved to righteousness and you have been freed from slavery to sin. You no longer have to sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. So now, he goes, for just as you once presented your members, the members just means like all your body, all your body parts, all, all the things, that all of the ways in which you've invented ways to sin with your hands and your arms and your whatevers, Okay. The same way you present your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, so here's the shift. Here's the change. Now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the choice. You have been freed. So no, now go act like it. You are freed from sin. You don't have to serve sin. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. You are now, in fact, slaved, enslaved to righteousness. So now go act like it. Go present your body. Think about your body. Think about your life. Think about your choices. Think about all of your many resources and think about how they might be oriented towards righteousness. Verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, right? Because I think here's what happens. And this is, again, Paul just understanding human psychology, right? He just gets people. That we're starting to think about this and going, okay, every way in which I have in the past presented my body to sin, now I have to present it to righteousness. Okay. So maybe we start doing some inventory about like different ways that we have sinned. Okay? And maybe as we think about our sin and we think about now how we're going to reorient our life around righteousness and obedience from our heart the way Christ has freed us for, maybe there's some regret. Maybe there's some sadness. Maybe we go, oh man, yeah, that was sin, but those were some good times. Man, I, you know, those old friends with their house parties, man, I'm going to miss those. Because, yeah, maybe, maybe there was some sinning happening, some sins being committed there. But, uh, 
But those are good people and that was a good time. And I have some really good Instagram stories from those days. And maybe as you start to think about uh, the, the sin you're going to have to lay down and the choices you're going to no longer make, maybe there's a little bit of regret there. And maybe, maybe you start to think, you know, do I have to lay down all of that? Like, what if I just add it? So I've got this ledger idea again. I've got all these negative things, all the sin and whatever. Maybe, what if I just started adding good? Would I just like kind of balance things out? Do I really have to eliminate these things? I mean, as, when Paul kind of turns the screw a little bit and goes, the same way you presented your members to lawlessness, now I want you to present them to righteousness. And we're starting to think through what that exactly means. Paul goes, I think you need one more idea. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. I love that question. I've always loved this question. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Because there's, there's moments I think back to my life to fun times times where I was hanging out with my buddies. We're having good times. And there is a bit of shame around some of the decisions we made. Some of the things I said, some of the things I did. I'm a, I don't want you to know about it. I'm a pastor now. I'm, you know, I'm a different guy. I mean, maybe I was a pastor then too, but that's irrelevant. Point is, there's some things in, in, in my past. There's moments of things I've said and things I've done that I am ashamed of. So, you know, every time that we start to go, well, but I mean, I mean, those were, those were innocent times. Those were good times. Paul goes, what was the fruit of those times? Like what came of that? You now look back and you're ashamed of it. What, what was, what was it producing in you, through you, for you, for your friends? What was happening? What, what was the result of those actions? Think about that. Every time you mourn having to put to death some sin, think to yourself, but what came of that sin? What came of that time? Besides some hangovers and some stories that you can only tell to a few people, what, what, what actually came of that? I, I think that's a question that we should be asking ourselves all the time. Every single time we hesitate to lay down sin in our life, we should have Paul's words ringing in our ears. What was the fruit of those things of which you are now ashamed? Because those things lead to death. The end of those things is death. Remember, that, that was what Paul said in verse 16. He goes, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to to righteousness. The reality is you have been freed from sin. One of the ways I like to think about this is, is that you were locked in a room and that room was sin. You were enslaved to sin. You were locked in it. You had no choice. But then when Christ saved you, he unlocked the door to that room, opened the door so that you could be free. And maybe in that moment when he freed you, you leapt out of that room. You leapt through that door, embraced Christ, and lived freely for a time. 
But then eventually you started remembering the room. And you maybe even remembered it fondly at times. You kind of go, man, you know, it wasn't that bad being locked in that room, actually. It was comfortable. You know, you kind of figured it out. I made friends with the rats and whatever. Like, you kind of just figure it out. And then maybe after you've had a taste of freedom, you kind of... You kind of miss the old days, even though the old days were, were, were slavery. The old days were you locked in a room by yourself, but you kind of look forward to them. Or you look back on them fondly and you kind of go, man, well, maybe I should just go visit the room just for old time's sake, just to, just to see the old rats, you know, just to see my buddies. And so you go back to the room and you step in and maybe it seems a little smaller than you remember. Maybe it seems a little danker than you remember and you don't stay long. Then maybe a couple more weeks go by or months go by and you go, ah, you know, I'm going to go back. I, I, I didn't spend enough time with her. I just want to go see her. And slowly but surely, you spend more and more and more time going back into the very room you were freed from. Back to slavery. Back to sin. Even though you've been afraid, you've been freed. You willingly step back into slavery, put the cuffs back on your wrists, even though they hang loosely, just pretending like you are still enslaved to that, like you have no choice, like you have to, even though Jesus has freed you, has unlocked those shackles, has taken the door off the room. You're free and yet willingly walk the path of death. Paul goes, why do you do that? Why would you? This path leads to death. The things of which you are now ashamed, the end of those things is death. Whenever you see the word but, B-U-T, in the Bible, it's always a change. It's always a shift. So it's either good news, but, or it's bad news, but. Well, in this case, it's bad news, but. Which means verse 22 is good news. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, part of the Romans road. The simplicity of the offer of the gospel. The wages of sin is death. What sin earns you is just death. And don't even think about death as like a consequence. Like if you sin, God's going to kill you. No. Sin is the path to death. The end of that journey is death. It just is one step in front of the other towards death. That's why Paul said earlier, like that you pursued impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness because sin begets sin. You're walking down a path of disobedience. You're walking down a path of selfishness. You're walking down the path of death. And so lawlessness becomes more lawlessness, becomes more lawlessness, becomes more impurity, becomes more impurity, becomes death. And Paul just goes, listen, it's not complicated. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week, uh, Josh talked about how I'm um, just telling people to stop sinning is not a helpful thing to do. And I 100% agree with that. And, and 
as Christians who have been freed from sin, you can. One of my favorite skits, I'm a sketch comedy guy, I love comedy in general, and one of my favorite skits of all time is Bob Newhart on Mad TV, playing a psychologist, and people would come into his office, and he'd go, this is gonna take five minutes, and he'd just go, tell me the story. This one lady's claustrophobic, I'm just worried about you know being in small spaces, and it just freaks me out, and I can't handle it, and whatever, and he goes, okay, okay, here's my advice. Stop it! That sounds terrible, stop! Don't do that. Uh, that's awful. And she, you know, of course, she's taken aback. Like, what do you mean stop it? He goes, just stop. You're not doing it right now. Just keep not doing it, right? And, and what is hilarious advice is actually for the Christian who has been freed from sin, sound advice. You can stop. Each and every moment in your life, when you have a choice to make about telling the truth or telling a lie, pursuing the good or pursuing evil, gossiping or not gossiping, sleeping with somebody or not sleeping with somebody, whatever it is, the, the million choices we have every single day, choose the path of sin that leads to death or the path of obedience that leads to righteousness. Live like you were made to live or live any other way that leads to death. Be who you were made to be. Embrace the fact that Christ died for you, freeing you from sin, that you can, you simply can make that choice. Yes, there is temptation. Yes, there are evil uh, uh, powers working against you. Yes, there is flesh. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not complicated. You have been freed from sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death defeated death. Jesus' life put dead, put death to death. Verse 9 of Romans 6, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The death of sin has been put to death for you. Live like it. Live like it. Just like Paul says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Choose the path of obedience that leads to life. Do it once and then do it again, and then do it again, and then you'll fail, and you repent, and you do it again, which repenting is doing it again. Repenting is walking the path that God has made for us. That is what it is. You can. You are not enslaved to sin in Christ. He has empowered you. He has put to death sin for you so that we can walk in victory and walk in life. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have empowered us to live. That we are no longer enslaved to sin. We can just stop. Not because we're powerful, not because we're disciplined, not because of any of that, but because you have freed us. You've led us out of our room of slavery. You've given us the power to say no to sin. Lord, may we. 
May we do that over and over and over and over and over. Choose the path of righteousness. Choose the path of obedience. Choose to be who you made us to be. Empower us, Lord. Remind us that we have been empowered to do that and that we would reap the benefits. And in those moments when we're tempted that we, that, that Paul's question would ring in our ears, what was the fruit? What actually came of those times of which we are now ashamed? Because the answer is death. Remind us of that, Lord. Remind us of the stakes, the consequences of our decisions and remind us of the hope and the opportunity we have in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.